Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 27th, 2017. On today's show, we'll talk about the latest news, including Blade Runner 2049 early buzz. The first reviews have hit the web, and was it good? Was it bad? We'll tell you what what we've heard. Uh, Lord and Miller's next film is in development, and it's kind of surprising, so stick with us. We'll talk about that as well. And we'll also talk about the growing cost of television shows uh in the mailbag we'll dive into the best dvd slash blu-ray special feature slash making ofs uh that you may have missed uh with me on today's show is ben pearson hey what's going on uh not much uh not much at all the 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 last week and a half has been the slowest uh news has been in quite some time uh obviously there's uh you know a film festival going on there's the whole uh elmo draft house situation going on which you can read an article on the site uh on uh, Wednesday from us about that uh, and all the updates. Um, but let's get into the, the little news that there is. Um, the Blade Runner 2049, the first social reactions have come out. Uh, Warner Brothers uh, had had an embargo on Twitter and Facebook reactions. The, the first press who saw it at the junket, which doesn't include you and me, uh, ha- are, are raving. What did, what did they say? People love this movie, Peter. I would, I'm shocked to hear. This is uh, I, I, We compiled in this article a list of, I don't know, probably 15 or maybe 20 people's reactions to this thing. And everybody loves this film and, and not only loves it, but like I think four or five of those people referred to it as a masterpiece. So this is like uh, I, I have not seen praise this universal and, and this sort of um, – uh, uh, yeah, just like people are so psyched for this film. I haven't seen this since maybe War for the Planet of the Apes, I think, is the last sort of big budget studio film that I've seen people sort of go this crazy for. Uh, I personally was sort of like, ah, whatever, I'm not really, you know, that interested in a Blade Runner sequel. But seeing all of these people, many of whom we work with and, and sort of know and respect, um, rave about this movie and these people are not traditionally people known to exaggerate about their you know their feelings about a film uh, I'm sort of blown away by oh. the insanely great reaction this film is getting 
Uh, um, me too. I mean, I was expecting this to be visually stunning. That the first Blade Runner was a visual masterpiece. It was world building before world building was a like, you know, a buzzword. And mm-hmm. um, the story was a little slow and not as great as the visuals, in my opinion. Um, and I was expecting this to be the same. I was expecting this to blow me away visually and yeah. be a little, you know, slow going. But uh, the early buzz suggests otherwise. Yeah, they say it's a, a tight, twisty mystery. One person said it's the best movie of 2017 so far. Um, obviously, there is a lot of praise for the direction and the the visuals and stuff like you mentioned. But yeah, just like people are saying, you know, I sort of walked in, wasn't really expecting too much. But this is a groundbreaking science fiction masterpiece that's like astonishing and has, you know, bl- expands the universe in really interesting, fascinating ways. So uh, I, you know, as somebody who is sort of um, apathetic about the film going in now, seeing these reactions from all these people, I'm very much looking forward to this now. Yeah, you're not a huge fan of the original Blade Runner, right? Right. Yeah, I'm sort of the same as you. Like I, I watched it because it was so influential and all this stuff. I came to it much later in my movie going life and was expecting it to be. Um, yeah, maybe a little faster paced or something, but it was, you know, it, it's one of those films that like you can clearly see the, the market made and, and, you know, the impact it had on everything afterwards. Um, oh, almost but, every sci-fi film after right. that, uh, every s- futuristic city is influenced yeah, by Blade Runner. Totally. But like, I, I just wasn't, I didn't connect to the story in, um, in a way that, you know, I, I think I've only actually seen it maybe once or maybe twice total in my life. So I, it's not something that I've, you know, gone back and revisited. It's, it's like, um, this is probably a, a controversial statement, but to me, it's sort of like the Beatles. Like, uh, I understand the impact that they had, but I'm not really like a huge fan. So I don't go back and listen to them all the time. Ouch. Ouch. Um, <laughs> that's just, the, that, just that the analogy that I came up with. Um, my my girlfriend Kitra, not to out her, has not seen Blade Runner yet. Um, so I've been wondering, I, I've been pondering if uh, if we should rewatch it before this new movie. Uh, you know, there's films like obviously like Tron Legacy. The original Tron is, is long, kind of boring. I, I mean, I guess it, it has shares some comparisons with the original Blade Runner, sure. where it's visually stunning, but not the uh, the most exciting story. Of all time. Yeah. And um, I guess I should mention that um, Steve Weintraub over at Collider said in one of his reactions um, that you don't have to see the original Blade Runner to watch Blade Runner 2049, but it definitely makes the film better if you have. Hmm. Yeah, I think we're going to have to rewatch it then. <laughs> yeah. Because she needs to have the best experience of this. For sure. Yes. Uh and also, there there's an anime that came online that people can check out on SlashFilm.com. Uh, th- this is a uh, one of the short films they're releasing in conjunction with this new Blade Runner film. Uh, it's called Blade Runner Blackout uh, 2022. And uh, HT has a whole write-up on the site. It is stunning. Uh, you should check it out. Uh, I'm, I'm waiting because I, I, I want to see this stuff after I see the movie. But mm-hmm. um, but it looks fantastic. I, I kind of like breezed through it, uh, just like getting a sample of the uh, visuals and uh, yeah, it yeah. reminds me a little bit of like the uh, the anime that came out around the Matrix. Um, was it the Animatrix? I think was what that was called. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a whole series of 
short films that came out uh, alongside the sequels to The Matrix, actually. Yeah, and uh, this is another Warner Brothers thing, so maybe they like doing that for uh, for these big sci-fi films. It makes sense. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that Ghost in the Shell didn't do something like that. Uh, yeah. That was Paramount. Um, but moving on, uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller were the were, – were the, they are – are they the directors of Han Solo? <laughs> uh, I guess they're going to be credited as directors of Han Solo, right? I <laughs> Actually, think we don't so. even know. Uh, well, <laughs> if you haven't heard, <laughs> they are no longer on that project. They have been replaced by Ron Howard. Uh, we've talked at length about that. And Lord and Miller have finally found their next project, which is actually kind of, kind of a surprise. Um, because it doesn't seem like their usual comedy. It doesn't seem like they usually pick projects that I like to say that, uh, they pick projects that you don't think are going to be great and they make them amazing. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they under promise and over deliver. And this project is from Andy Weir, who was the author of the Martian. His next book is called Artemis and it's a sci-fi film. Uh, it's described as set in the near future. Uh, it's a thriller that follows direction, directionless 20-something named Jazz uh, at the constraints of her small town, Artemis, which so happens to be the first and only city on the moon. Uh, Jazz, a budding smuggler, uh, unwittingly finds herself in the middle of a conspiracy for the control of her hometown. This, I mean, this sounds like a, it could be a Star Wars standalone movie. Yeah, it really does. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it basically sounds like, you know, there's all this stuff about how Lord and Miller couldn't make a big budget sci-fi movie. And it almost seems like a reaction to that, that they're like, you know, fuck all that buzz. We're going to show them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I would love to hear them talk about that and see if they actually because they seem like the f- kind of filmmakers that would actually openly say if that was part of their, um, you know, their their decision making process or not. Yeah. And uh, we, we don't know much about this uh, space adventure story, but we do know the author has said that he's really excited about it, that he got to do a, quote, science dork stuff. I love. Uh, but this time with much more complex and character-driven plot. Uh, it's a big stretch for me, but I think it will c- come out well. Hopefully the readers will agree that Martian was straight-up human-versus-nature story where the goal was simple survival. Artemis is much more complicated crime story with mysteries involved. It was much more difficult to write and also a lot more interesting, I think. So uh, Artemis will hit book sh- bookstore shelves and... Uh, you know, your Kindle and iPads and all that on November 17th, 2017. This looks like a book to, uh, you know, to, to get your hands on and, and read before it gets made into a big budget uh, sci-fi film. Yeah, for sure. Um, and lastly in the news, there is uh, a story going around about the the rising expenses uh, for television productions. Uh, you wrote the story for SlashFilm.com. What do we know? Yeah, so the final season, the final six episodes of Game of Thrones are supposed to cost $15 million each. 
So that is crazy. That's such an insane number. Um, but yeah, Variety did a, a really great rundown of the changing tides in uh, television production costs right now and how everything is becoming way more expensive than it ever has been before. And peak TV has sort of exacerbated all of these costs. And it's made things a lot more difficult for the people who are actually making these shows because it's sort of spreading the field and thinning the herd almost like a reason that the production costs are going up is because there's a lack of experience among showrunners and crews and stuff like that because there are so many more people making television now that uh you know people are sort of being thrust into positions of power leading these shows who maybe have not been there before who don't have the hours of experience that maybe more seasoned people do to be able to make the, the most cost-effective decisions. So it's something that I hadn't really considered before, um, but that definitely is, is playing a big role in that. I think the volume of scripted series has gone up something like 71% between 2011 and 2016. So at the end of this year, there are supposed to be over 500 scripted shows that aired during 2017 when the final tally is all is all you know sort of counted so uh we we were at peak tv yeah absolutely and the crazy part is that 15 million dollars for that final season of game of thrones of 15 million per episode uh cost might not be as high as it gets uh netflix's finance chief david wells was like is 20 million dollars an hour television possible certainly so this is something that i think until this bubble bursts we're going to see more and more increased costs because as you know all of these different streaming services and and cable networks and stuff are just the quality of television is rising so quickly that these people have to come up with visually cinematic interesting looking tv to stand out among the pack yeah i remember when game of thrones the first season game of thrones was on and i was like you know once that that dragon grows up they're not going to be able to afford to do this right and i was so wrong um but uh 15 million dollars isn't even the highest it has been it should be noted that um in the united states the average broadcast network drama costs about three million dollars per episode so, you know, $15 million is, you know, five times that. But uh, there have been instances where, you know, pilots have cost more than that. Loss, two-hour pilot cost, uh, I think, $14 million. Terra Nova's two-hour pilot cost $20 million uh, by some reports. Um, and there, there's been a bunch of shows that have cost, you know, Boardwalk Empire uh, was the first show to do an $18 million first episode um i'm wondering we've heard game of thrones that the next and final season is going to be feature length episodes so double Mm -hmm. the length of a normal episode so i'm wondering if that you know goes into the cost because obviously you know that's more shooting days that's more visual effects that's basically essentially you know you're you're shooting the amount of video that is two episodes and releasing it as one right yeah so uh before that, I mean, I, I think Game of Thrones has been regularly doing like five to ten million dollar episodes. 
I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And like there are a ton of shows that are even Stranger Things. Like we don't really know a ton about the way Netflix uh, conducts their business because all of their numbers are very secretive. But uh, the first season of Stranger Things, each of the episodes cost six million dollars. And then the season two, the upcoming season two has bumped that up to eight million dollars an episode. So, yeah, HBO is still sort of leading the pack when it comes to um yeah, like overall costs because Game of Thrones is such a phenomenon. And it should be mentioned that the way that they can justify doing that is because that show has made them so much money from, you know, merchandising and all sorts of other stuff. So it's it's justified um, and and it's a proven thing. It's like one of the biggest shows on television. So they, they feel like it's worth it. But it, it, every, unlike, everybody else has to catch up to that, basically. You know, I was going to say, unlike other networks, cable networks, people are actually putting down money each month to subscribe to HBO, just like they are Netflix. So if, if those people, and I know a lot of them that are watching HBO just for Game of Thrones, uh, you know, it, it makes sense that they, they, they should put a lot of money into this show because... You know, when it goes off the air, what what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, which I, I guess is probably why HBO is developing, you know, half dozen Game of Thrones spinoffs and sequels and pre- prequels and whatnot. Right. Um, yes, which we've previously talked about. Uh, but you can read Ben's whole article on this at SlashFilm.com, which should be up by Wednesday. And we'll have a listing of, of the most expensive shows of all time and uh, give you a lot more info on this subject uh let's get to a mailbag because we haven't done a mailbag in i think a week now um in the mailbag uh colin singh asks i listened to you and chris the other day talking about top 10 movies you mentioned that everyone should check out the making of for the movie zodiac and there are are there any other movies that you recommend seeing the making of I own a ton of Blu-rays and DVDs for this purpose, but never get around to watching any of them. And uh, that's the problem, right? Yes. (laughs) Who has the time for this? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we were talking a little bit before is like, you know, back when I was in college and I had a ton of free time on my hand, I would watch a movie and then immediately after the film was done, just dive into the special features and figure out how it was made and watch all the documentaries and all that stuff. But, you know, it it's become um, a far more rare thing for me to actually take the time to do something like that. But I think you and I both have a few picks here of uh, films where it's totally worth it to go into the special features and check out what's, what they have to offer. Yeah, and a lot of my picks, and I think your picks too, are probably older movies because we watched these special features, you know, uh, five, ten years ago when we had yeah. when we actually had free time. Uh, you know what's actually interesting I've noticed with recent releases, the special features, and especially these making of documentaries, have become kind of more standard featurettes and not as uh, meaty. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if that has to do with, you know, now people are buying stuff on like iTunes and, and the studios can tell how many people are watching, you know, this, this special feature. Um, are they, see- I'm wondering if the studios are seeing like, oh, it's not worth it to put this much money into the making of this movie when, you know, everybody's just watching the movie and then maybe the audio commentary here. Do, right. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, but, uh, let's get into it. Um, I'll start with, uh, I mentioned Zodiac. The other day, Zodiac has great special features on the invisible visual effects that go on in that movie. Um, 
I mean, David Fincher's all his films do, uh, but Zodiac, I think, is the best at that because even, you know, Fight Club has some stuff that is uh, stylish and you can tell it's a visual effect. Zodiac, many of the stuff is just like so invisible. And uh, you, you watch this and you, you have a no, new appreciation for the work that went into, you know, completing that film. Um, a lot of my picks, uh, I'll, I'll do one more before you, you get to some of yours. Uh, uh, a lot of my picks are the documentaries that feel less like a studio produced featurette and feel more like we're, we're visiting sets. We are a fly on the wall of this mm-hmm. production. And, uh, one of those is Magnolia. Paul Thomas Anderson had this, I think it was called Magnolia Diary or that one moment or something but there's this documentary there might even be two documentaries on that dvd i haven't revisited in such a long time but uh he shot it himself during the making of magnolia and it gives you such insight into the process of making a film not just look you know the development the production but also the releasing of the film and there's actually like a scene i remember vividly of like uh him and his then girlfriend fiona apple uh kind of um going over the creative process of 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 what it is like to release art into the world and it, it it's so great uh if you have not seen this i i highly recommend it especially if you like the movie magnolia which is one of my favorites uh what are some of yours ben so the the key one the one that instantly came to mind when this question was posed was uh all of the bonus features that are on the extended edition lord of the rings discs because those i've actually watched recently like within the past year i watched them all actually right before i went to new zealand for the first time and they blew me away i had never sat down and watched all of them before but the sheer number of special features that are on that disc i mean it'll take you probably a few days to go through and watch um you know the movies themselves and then all of the special features across all three films but it's definitely worth it if you're a big lord of the rings fan because it it somehow even though i loved those movies already it uh increased my appreciation for them so much more because you get to see the extent of uh weta's involvement in this whole thing you get to see all of the different, um, you know, how they basically ma- like made all of the pieces of chain mail by hand, like the tremendous amount of work that went into crafting this entire universe and building it from the ground up. Uh, all of that is extensively covered in all of these documentaries. There's a, pun- a bunch of great stuff with the cast in there. There's documentaries about the music, which I love Howard Shore's score for those films. So, yeah, if you have not, if you just bought the Lord of the Rings set and have not taken the time to dive into the special features, I cannot recommend that highly enough. Um, next on my list is E.T. Uh, if you, you know... I think this came out a couple years ago on the most recent release of E.T. And they've just re-released it again, I think, on Blu-ray. So hopefully it's on there. But they have this documentary that was shot on set with uh, unit publicists and whatnot uh, while they were making the movie. And you get to see Steven Spielberg, you know, talking with the kids about his, you know, getting scores on uh, some video game that they're all playing at the time. And (laughs) uh, I don't know. it's, it's, It's just cool to be, especially a film that you've probably seen I mean, I've seen dozens and dozens of times. It's a film I love. And to 
basically get a glimpse onto that set while it was being made and seeing these people that created it. And uh, it's not as much about uh, how the magic was made, but just getting a glimpse into, uh, you know, the behind the scenes. And uh, that uh, is just magical for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the next one on my list is uh, something that I actually mentioned on a recent episode of the show, Superman, the motion picture anthology. Uh, this includes every Superman movie uh, all the way from Superman the movie up until uh, Superman Returns. And it has uh, obviously the movies themselves, which all have commentary tracks, um, except for Superman Returns, which has a three hour making of documentary all to itself just about that movie. But it's eight discs and it has like over 20 hours of bonus features. So, you know, even if you don't if you don't know anything about Superman, all you need to do is get this box set and go through all of that stuff. And I feel like you could walk out and like teach a college class about Superman or something because it turns you basically into like a Superman historian. It's so crazy how much. Uh, just like the sheer amount of content that is on those discs. Um, I think I mentioned before that they have the original Fleischer Brothers cartoons, yeah. which uh, you know inspired the later Superman cartoon and Batman the Animated Series. Um, and yeah, the, just the uh, it's it's insane how much content there is. They have like all the old uh, George Reeves shows, and I think there's like something about um, something involving a dog. Uh, what the hell name was it? It's like something about crypto, the super dog or something yes. shows up in like, in like this really old school, um, like a failed TV pilot from 1958 or something. Oh, the adventures of super pup. That's what it's called. And then it's totally nuts. So that is, you can watch that whole thing, which you can't really find very many other places on this, in these bonus features. So there's a tribute to Christopher Reeve in there. There's archival footage, um, interviews with the cast members. It's, it's really, uh, high quality stuff. You know, the, the Superman returns three hour making of was probably done in the peak of the DVD special edition era. Um, I guess also Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. sadly now we're more in this assembly line, you know, make these featurettes and release them alongside the DVD. But, um, one, one of the more recent picks on my list is mission impossible ghost protocol, the Brad bird movie, uh, Michael Giacchino's brother anthony giacchino uh filmed this documentary which he's the guy that filmed the documentary uh for the iron giant the recent uh documentary that was released for the iron giant and showing the making of that which is amazing that's also a special feature i think so th that's also on my list there but, you go. um but anthony the, the great thing about anthony's documentary on mission impossible is he kind of was just there on the sidelines for the whole making of the film and it started with like him some of the footage is like iphone footage and stuff like that and then it, it seems like they're like oh we're gonna get some you know budget for this um but it, it really gives you a glimpse at uh you know if you like to see how you know stunts are created and how that kind of movie magic is created and making a movie with a movie star on the level of tom cruise and it not feeling like you know one of these assembly line studio produced featurettes uh this is the one i would recommend to you uh i'm not sure if anthony was involved in jj uh, abrams original star trek dvd but that had also a ton of stuff not just like one making of feature but it had like here's a featurette on the first unit director and what they do 
So oh, wow. if, if you're interested in seeing what happens on a set and what the different people do on a set, uh, that original Star Trek DVD was incredible. Sadly, sadly, J.J. Abrams got too obsessed with the mystery box and his his DVDs and Blu-rays. The fe- special features are like really sadly underwhelming, and I was so disappointed by that uh, making of on on the Force Awakens DVD. Now, but uh, he, before he used to love. The process of movie making and and giving us all an insight into that process. I'm 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 saddened that uh, the secrets the secrecy has kind of uh, put a stop to that. Yeah. Well, another J.J. Abrams property is uh, is lost, and those the bonus features on uh, that series. You just reminded me of mentioning Abrams. Uh, that wasn't on my list, but thinking about um, the time that I've you know spent going through the the bonus stuff for Lost, uh, <laughs> there's really a lot of great stuff on there. Damon Lindelof, who's always you know say what you will about the quality of his work. I know some people despise him, but he is one of those guys kind of like Kevin Smith where he's great just to listen to him talk and, you know, tell a story. And he's always like an engaging personality. And he's a major player in a lot of those behind the scenes documentaries and stuff like that, that are on the, uh, the lost box sets. So if you happen to have those and, and, you know, if you're not watching the show, catching up with it on Netflix or something like that, if you actually have the physical box sets, uh, again, dive into those and check out the footage because they do a similar thing where they follow um, the entire crew and do like a day in the life on the episode of a show. And it sort of, you know, shows you them filming one episode over on a set in Hawaii. And then it the camera sort of moves all the way over to Los Angeles and shows you that they're working on a different episode in post-production and like the writers are writing a different thing and all that stuff. So it really gives you a good idea and sort of contextualizes the physical process of how much work it takes to make a television show. So definitely recommend those. Um, And then uh, another one real quick on my list would be uh, one that I haven't seen in a long time, but I think it's only like 35 or 40 minutes and it's for The Shining. It's like a making of documentary for Stanley Kubrick's The Shining that was shot by his daughter, who I think was only 17 years old when she filmed the making of. But uh, it's fascinating. I think that one's on YouTube somewhere. So you can probably track that down. Actually, a lot of these that we're talking about, you can probably find the individual videos, you know, ripped for YouTube or something. But um, yeah, I think Vivian, Vivian Kubrick was the one who shot it. And it, yeah, it's like a 40 minute documentary. I think there's a a part where it shows Jack Nicholson sort of getting amped up for his here's Johnny moment of, you know, chopping the ax through the door. And, uh, yeah, Shelly, Shelly Wong. Is that the person? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I remember her breaking down. There's this whole part where she's breaking down on set. That documentary is fantastic. And I'm, I'm sure you could probably find it on YouTube if you're looking for it. Um, Another, you mentioned Kevin Smith and Ke- all of Kevin Smith's DVDs and Blu-rays, even if you don't like the movies, are worth in, uh, seeing the special features for. Um, the commentary tracks are amazing, but I wanted to highlight two of, because we're talking a make, about making ofs, I wanted to highlight highlight two of those. One is on the Clerks, uh, I think, 10-year edition, and it's called uh, The Snowball Effect, and it's like this insanely long documentary about not only the making of Clerks, but the, you know, it going to Sundance and how it, you know, broke out and was kind of like part of this whole indie film uh, revolution and Mm -hmm. also the uh, lasting effect it has had on uh, not just fans, but also, uh, you know, independent film. 
Um, it's it's a great documentary. A lot of time was put into it. Uh, Clerks 2, uh, even if you don't love that movie, uh, has a great documentary, which kind of like is very honest look at Kevin Smith coming off Jersey Girl, coming off a failure that he, you know, he knows it's a failure and returning to the, you know, the the, the safe space that, you know, was the thing that created his whole entire career. And it's um very insightful, very honest and very uh i don't know i i love those kind of documentaries yeah definitely uh i should mention peter that it was shelly duvall not shelly long so anyone listening you can ah. uh you know sheath your uh pitchforks oh, and they've, save... they've already sent their emails it's too late <laughs> i do yeah. this all the time by the way i listen to like slash filmcast and they'll say something and i'll like shoot off an email and then like a few seconds later they'll correct themselves <laughs> i'll have to send an apology so so i'm waiting for your apology if you accept that email Yes. Uh, so I, there are just a couple more on my list that I'll run through really quickly. Um, one is called Hearts of Darkness. It's a documentary about the making of Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, which is uh, actually co-directed by Eleanor Coppola, his wife. And that is a really, really great uh, look at the sort of uh, the tagline says the magic and the madness of making Apocalypse Now. And that's a really good description of it because it shows the sort of creative spark and the the creative drive that Coppola had while he was making that movie, but also the borderline insanity and obsessive quality that uh, that made that movie um, legendary, really. So that one's definitely worth seeing. I think that comes with, uh, you know, it's packaged with Apocalypse Now and a lot of box sets and stuff like that. Uh, the other one would be Breaking Bad, which I have a Breaking Bad barrel Blu-ray box set. That's, prob- about, that's uh, probably the best box set, uh, box set in the history of box sets. Really? Okay, so my parents so. got it for me um, for my birthday a couple years ago after the show ended, and I have I want to rewatch all of Breaking Bad before I dive into all that stuff. So I have it just like sitting in my living room, and I haven't really gotten into it yet. But just knowing that there's like 55 hours of special features and the two-hour documentary and all sorts of stuff on there, I'm very excited to finally carve out the time to sit down. So I just wanted to sort of give a shout out to that because it's it's got a great package and all sorts of um, cool little trinkets and stuff that come in with that set as well. I have a couple more on my list, and it's Star Wars Episode One and Three. Episode One has an amazing documentary giving you a look behind the scenes of them making like a big budget Star Wars movie. It's like it's not like a highly polished, you know, kind of thing. It's kind of like you. You know, getting a glimpse into air. I, I mean, I, I remember there's like this whole thing where they were going to shoot the pod race sequence in the desert, and they, this whole storm basically completely ruined all these uh, vehicles and props. And it was like, I don't know, it's, it's just very compelling. Uh, episode three had a documentary called um, In a Minute, which essentially examined one minute of the film and all the work that went into that one minute from the script to the, you know, storyboarding, to the visual effects, to the production, to the editing, to the, you know, that's a really cool concept. It's incredible. If you haven't seen it. And sadly, I'm not sure if these two documentaries made it into the Disney re-releases recently. Um, I don't know why, uh, maybe because they're more honest and less polished than, uh, the usual stuff. And, uh, on the same note, I want to mention this one's not as great, but it's it's good. Uh, on jo- the John Carter Blu-ray, there's a documentary. It's a 30-minute thing called 360 Degrees of John Carter. And it was shot 
I want to say with like 15 cameras in one day of filming. So it, it takes you into, you know, the extras casting or the, I mean, extra, not extras casting, the extras waiting tent while they're like getting their makeup on. It, 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 it's filming all around set and showing you giving it. It's the closest thing. You know, I, I get asked a lot, like, what is it like to go on set of a movie? And we talked about this recently. And this is the closest thing to actually seeing what we get to see when we're on set, because it literally gives you, uh, you know, everything that happens in one day of filming in a 30 minute uh, kind of uh, really well edited documentary. Yeah, man, that sounds cool. And uh, you, you didn't have any others? No, that was it. Yeah, that's it. That is it. So that is it for this edition of the mailbag. Uh, if you have questions, send them to us at peter at slash film.com. Please mention your name and general geographic location in case we mention them on the air. Uh, you can find more of my work at slash film and at slash film on Twitter. You can find Ben at Ben Pears and, of course, on SlashHome.com. Uh, you can uh, find all the stories we mentioned on today's show on SlashHome.com. Uh, this podcast is published every weekday, and you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, and all the popular podcast apps. Please do. Please give us a rating. Give us a review on iTunes. That helps us out. Spread the word. Tell your friends. You know. Tell, tell everybody you know on Twitter and Facebook about this podcast. Uh, we could always use uh, more listeners. And uh, I want to thank you all for, for listening.